15, excuse me, Psalm 15 is our first reading. <clears throat> it's a short psalm, but it is packed full of great information. So we're only going to take one chunk here, just Psalm 15. Here now, the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God, a psalm of David. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So the psalm is written by David. The occasion of its writing has been the subject of some conjecture among commentators. And the only reason I bring up this one conjecture is because it is instructive and useful for us. Um, As you know David, as you know his life, as you've read through it several times in the scripture, what day do you think, what, what day would be reasonable, at least a reasonable assumption to choose as the occasion of the writing of this particular psalm. And I agree with some commentators that that this would be the day when they sought to bring up the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom, and they put it on an ox cart, and it was heading into Jerusalem, and the ox cart found a rut in the road, and it lurched, and Uzzah stretched out his hand and touched the Ark, and when he he touched the Ark, immediately he was slain. And David named that place in order to make it memorable. He named that place Perez Uzzah. That is, the Lord breached or made a breach upon Uzzah. Or the Lord broke out upon Uzzah. So, that seems to me to be a very reasonable assumption. Now, it's not necessary to the interpretation of the passage. But it does, I think, help put us in the right frame of mind when we with David will ask... Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He'll ask the same questions later, right? Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Or who shall abide in his holy place? And he'll give a a different set of things here. But the idea is the same. And what is that idea? That there's really no one, no one that, that is holy enough or good enough or upright enough even in their best of intentions, like Uzzah, who sought to keep the ark from falling off of a cart, and the Lord slew him for touching it. David will later say of that event to the Levites, now you Levites, you take that ark and you put the the poles in those rings and you put it on your shoulders and carry it into Jerusalem because the Lord made a breach upon us at the last time because we sought him not after the due order. I think that there's an incipient uh, belief among many church-going folks today. It's a well-meaning belief, but it is 
an unbelieving belief, if you get what I mean by that. It's based on unbelief, not based on the word of the Lord, where, you know, these good intentions sort of rule the day. Right? Now, good intent, we want good intentions. We don't want evil intentions. But we want to make sure that we put good intentions in their right place. Good intentions do not replace obedience. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man. The end thereof are the ways of death, Solomon will write. Or as some of our fathers in this country said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Right? Okay, so so, um, the other thing that, that I want to make known about this psalm is that this is one of those psalms where we interpret it in one sense, with one eye on Christ, and in another sense, with an eye on David and all like him, including ourselves. So, let me say it this way, and this comes out, I think, very, very clearly in, you know, ye gates lift up your heads, Psalm 43. Um, who is the one who will, uh, who can ascend, uh, sorry, uh, I said the wrong psalm. Anyway, who is the one that can ascend to that hill? The King of glory. He's the one who can not only, not only ascend to the hill, but the gates will be thrown open to him, won't they? The gates will be thrown open wide to him. Who is this king of glory? Oh, ye gates, lift up your heads, and the king of glory shall come in. Why? Because he is the king of glory. And so he's the one who answers to what David says here. Who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And let's just briefly run through the requirements. He that walketh uprightly, worketh righteousness, speaketh truth in his heart, backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not, he putteth not out his money to usury, taketh not reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Which one of you are ready to sign up for that list? Certainly not me. Certainly not any of us. How many slip-ups does it take here to be thrown out of the hill of the Lord based on our works in this list here? Just one. One mistake. One little bit of ignorance. One little bit of not being, at, not being able to ascertain the good way from the best way. Suddenly we're thrown out from the hill of the Lord. From the tabernacle of the Lord. So in one sense then. When we see these kinds of ideal statements. We want to think about Christ. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled and separate from sinners. And the way by which we enter into the tabernacle of the Lord. Okay. In that absolute sense. Christ is the only one. Now, when we come to the understanding that is set forth here, that's the first thing. Now, let's consider it from the point of view with regard to David and the rest of us. That when we hear something like this, we're not ready to, you know, tighten up our belt and tighten up our shoes and make sure everything's in order and start running that race. But that we recognize that although we are required to give our best efforts to perfection, we will never reach it and our works will never attain, yet there is a direction that testifies to our love of the Lord that we must always follow. 
And we'll talk about the particulars in a second. But you can't talk about the particulars until you have all of the theory in place. And what is the theory? The theory is that there is one who will abide in the tabernacle because he is perfect. That's Christ. And that there are others who, standing in Christ, will have what we would call a relative obedience, not a perfect obedience, in the direction of these things, never meritoriously saving in themselves, but testifying to the faith that they have in the one who did attain in their stead. If we don't understand Psalm 15 like that, there are myriads of other psalms, many other psalms that we will not be able to understand. Very often the psalmist will sing about his own integrity. Well, there is a human imperfect integrity that we might sing about. But it's not a saving integrity. It's not a justifying integrity. It's just a work that some would think to thrust into the hands of God for his acceptance which he never will. But the integrity of Christ is true integrity. So we may sing Psalm 15 with one eye on David and one eye on Christ. One eye on the perfection that is required and answered by Christ and one eye on the direction that is required of all those who are in him. Okay? All right, let's talk about these various things then. We'll briefly run through them. So the first is a general uh, thing. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness. So outwardly, there is an upright walk and a working of that which is right. But then notice, who speaketh truth in his heart. What is required? An inner man and an outer man that is perfect. That's what's required. Verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue. Backbiting is uh, speaking about people behind their backs. And I know none of you have ever done that. Hmm. He backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor. One way of doing evil is speaking about him behind his back, but, but then there's the entire gamut of evils that may be done, right? So we have a particular and a general. And then he will say, uh, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. What does that mean? That means when there's a third party that comes in and says, oh, let me tell you what such and so did. He says, stop right there. Stop right there. And beloved, that's what's required. We don't take up a reproach. We don't take up an evil word about our neighbor, about a brother in Christ, about anyone. What we want is we want to say, is that person here to defend themselves? No. Then why am I hearing this? Do you want me to go and help you reconcile with that person? No. Well, what are you seeking then? They, they'll never say it like this. But Well, I wanted you to feel sorry for me and commiserate with me. That's what I wanted. Well, you're not going to get that here. Right? I'm not going to take up a reproach against my neighbor. So with regard to his neighbor, he doesn't backbite. That's a species of evil. He doesn't do any evil to his neighbor, and he doesn't receive evil about his neighbor from someone else. Fourth, or verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Contemned, rightly held in contempt. 
a vile person is rightly held in contempt, rather than the, the, the that our society gives to them. When we see a vile person, we say, that's vile, that's disgusting. Right? We don't cheer on evil. The Apostle Paul will write in Romans 1.32, not only those who do evil are condemned by God, but those who take pleasure in evil that others do are, are also condemned by God. Right? Those things are not funny. Most of the perversions of this age have been introduced to the general populace through comedy. Those things are not funny, beloved. They are to be condemned. They are to be held in contempt by the people of God, according to God's own standard. So in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Well, what happens when you make that, that announcement? with regard to some stand that you've taken or some moral activity, like Mike Pence did you know, a while back in the Pence Rule for Lunch. What happened? Was he honored for that? Was he honored for, for his fear of the Lord and his wanting to stay clear of any suspicion on the Seventh Commandment? He was not honored. No. Actually, he was contemned for it. Hopefully by no thinking Christian. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. I made a promise. Now I realize that promise is going to be more costly than I thought. Like Jephthah, it's going to cost me my family name. What am I going to do? Am I going to break that vow then? No. I'm going to vow and keep even if it's to my own hurt, to my own injury. Right? And that's what Jephthah did. So he gave up his family name. He gave his daughter to perpetual virginity and servitude in the temple so that his name died out with him. And then he that putteth not out his money to usury nor taketh reward against the innocent. That is, he doesn't build on the misery of others. He is like the Lord. Right? Isaiah I still can't remember the passage. I couldn't remember it in the first service. I can't remember it now. I think it's 65. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Instead of identifying with the difficulties and afflictions and hard times of others, this man takes advantage of it or refuses to take advantage, the righteous man. He refuses to take advantage of others. He won't kick them when they're down. And then he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Well, we won't do them all perfectly, will we? But if they are the direction and habit of our life, they testify to a faith that is a, that is a faith that Paul will say, works by love. With that then, let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer.